Good morning again. If you're visiting with us, uh, we're just so glad you're here. And you have uh, come on a, a very, very special time. Not necessarily in the life of this church, although I think it is. Uh, but in the life of this year, you've come on the verge of what's called Holy Week in a lot of religious traditions. And there's a lot of imagery up on stage today because of the week we're about to step into and the meaning that's surrounding it. And we hope with all of our hearts that you realize you've been set up. Someone's loved on you, someone's cared enough to invite you to come be with us, or even if you happen to be driving by and said, I think I'll pull in here to worship. God set you up. There's something very specific He would like to, to speak to you today, share with you today. And I want to invite you if, you, if you brought your Bibles with you, electronically, sacred book, however, open them up to Psalms chapter 31. Psalms chapter 31. A couple of infomercials before we dive in. First of all, uh, next Sunday, we'll be having an Easter sunrise service here at 7 o'clock. Not quite sunrise, but we've got a little mountain there that stands in the way of the sun. And so we're trying to let it get a little higher than the mountain because it's cold. And it probably will be a little bit cool in the morning, so please bring your jackets. But I can assure you this, there will be warmth around the empty tomb. You've got to see this empty tomb. That will start at 7 o'clock tomorrow. Um, I'm sorry, not tomorrow. How about Sunday? You can come tomorrow at 7. The empty tomb will be there, but we won't be. And then this afternoon, um, we're going to be having an Easter egg hunt. Oh, that we could have had it yesterday. Uh, or rather, could we have had the yesterday's weather today? We're going to be going out to the Medina's Children's Home and just enjoying some time with our kids as they hunt Easter eggs. But also, we're going to be eating a little uh, hot dogs and hamburgers there. So please, uh, come and join us and something warm also there too. In the house that we lived in in Ruidoso, Gail and I parked in the garage and walked into the house through a room that we called the mud room. It was a place for husbands and kids to take off their dirty shoes. Mothers never have dirty shoes. So husbands and kids would take off their shoes there, but it was also the place where the washer and the dryer were. I tell you that because one night we were coming home from our Sunday night small group, and as we walked from the garage by the dryer, Gail noticed it was open and said, Oh, I forgot to turn the clothes on. So she shut the dryer and we went in. Now why I remember this, I don't know. But I am glad that I did. Because a few moments later, I hear the familiar sound of shoes in the dryer making that, you know, thump, thump. Thump, 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 thump sound. And I said, hey, Gail, uh, you washing some of the girls' track shoes? And she said, no, I'm not washing any shoes. Why do you say that? And about that time we heard. <laughs> See, your millisecond worked a little bit faster than ours. But it did work, and we bolted to the dryer, opened the door, and sure enough, steps out our cat, Fluffy. Literally, that was her name, but we had never seen her looking more fluffy. <laughs> Bless her heart. Now, some of you are saying, yeah. We checked on her for several weeks to see if there was any permanent damage or was it, but she didn't purr very much after that, all right? <laughs> and every time she walked by the dryer, she'd go, Sss. Now, I share that story with you because, number one, it's just funny. <laughs> but number two, because if God brought you here this morning to hear this particular message, any of you, 
It could be because you're minding your own business. Life was pretty cozy. And then all of a sudden, your world started spinning. And someone turned the heat up. This is a good series for you to be here for. The series is called Shape for Greatness. And I want to tell you, today's sermon probably coincides with what all is going on with our microphones. It's entitled Broken. Broken for Greatness. And ever since I've been here, this microphone and its other brothers and sisters have been broken. In less than one, two weeks ago, a master artisan, Mark Jackson, was here with us. And he helped us to see visually what the Bible tries to convey literally. And that is, this world around us and every one of you in it, with us, was fearfully and wonderfully made. You didn't have to be here for the last two weeks to know that these pots, these three in particular, were no accident. They were intentionally and masterfully made, and so were you, the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created you. You have his word on it. Now, that knowledge is foundational, I believe, with all my heart to understanding what in the world is going on in our lives. That was lesson one. You've been formed. Lesson number two, you've been fired. You've been fired. These pots and you were both very useless when they first came into the world. Both of you were mushy, uh, both of you were soft, and of not much good to anybody. But they were fired. These pots were fired, and you were fired. Cool to look at when they first came in, but not much use to anybody. Exposure to extreme heat strengthened and prepared these vessels for use. And likewise, God showed us last week, sometimes heated, But almost always hurtful circumstances have a way of firing us and preparing us for our own usefulness. And I just want to stop and say, if life is a little bit heated right now, and if it's really an inferno, heated's not a big enough word. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. On the one hand. But please know that the same God who is in charge of forming you is also in charge of firing you. And he knows what he's doing, even when we don't have a clue. And even when the heat in your life comes from the fire of your own rebellious choices. Those blazes aren't his intention. But even when they strike, the master potter can use them for good. Amen, church? Amen. The sad thing is, often... Those rebellious choices bring major brokenness. Major brokenness. And that's why when anyone struggles to believe that a loving creator could be in control of this world, I get it. I do. Because so much of it seems to be out of control. There seems to be brokenness everywhere. So what in the world do you do with the broken pieces of our lives? The shattered dreams of those that we love. I'd like to read a text to you that really, for some of you, is the absolute perfect prayer for your life today. 
It's from Psalms chapter 31 and verse 9, and it's our text for the day, but it's also a prayer. Let's read it and pray together. Oh, be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. My soul and body are filled with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors and an object of dread to my closest friends. Those who see me on the street turn from me and I am forgotten as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. And my times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant and save me in your unfailing love. Father, we continue our prayer. It's a prayer that you've taught us to pray. And we realize we're not the only ones looking to your word this morning for some understanding on what in the world is going on. We join um, Calvary Temple this morning and the brothers and sisters of Christ who meet there. We ask you, Father, to please pull us together as a body in Christ, especially now in the time of brokenness that seems to be global, not just in our country. Help us, Father, to focus on the things that, that we can do together as family and not talk so much about the things that we, we just can't. Help us, Father, in the name of Jesus, to be your children in a way that shines forth as a bright, shining light into this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, Amen. When I was preaching in Rudos, New Mexico at the Gateway Church, in the year 2007, 12 churches came together for an event that we called What's Up. Y'all remember the famous say, What's Up? Well, we took that catchy little phrase and we made a little acronym out of it. We are the sermon, united in prayer. It was a weekend on which 12 churches determined to focus on what Christ had helped us to see we had in common together, not what we didn't. We determined that serving those who were struggling to take care of themselves at the moment was a great thing that we had in common. Together we painted houses, we installed handicap ramps, we cleaned up yards for the elderly, we replaced floors that were rotted out in single mother's homes. Over 25 houses in one day were given some long overdue TLC to people who lacked the resources to take care of those problems. The project that I helped with was located at a place called Alto Lake. It was a water reservoir for the village that we wanted to renovate and turn into a community park complete with walking track and picnic tables. It was just a place where we collected water that was used for primarily Alto, Alto Village. Tree snags were everywhere, overgrowth. It was just an absolute mess, and we had a vision. It could be a place of beauty and a place of usefulness for our community. So we pulled together over $35,000 between the 12 churches, and we built that park for the village of Rudosa. It was located just down the hill from where Gil and I lived, so that was kind of neat. I was walking around the lake one morning, and I was praying over that particular event we were still in the planning stages and we were surveying the grounds and platting out our picnic sites. And somebody said to me while we were walking, now you know anything you build like this is only going to be trashed by the people you're doing it for. Wow. 
That hit me hard. And to be honest, I hadn't thought about that. But later that day, I was walking by myself that evening, again, praying over the, the work that was about to take place there at Alto Lake. And I said, God, what do you want me to do? You know the man was right. They will tag the picnic tables and they will leave their whiskey bottles and juice boxes for others to pick up. Paper plates will be in the bushes that we plant. What was intended for good will be somebody else's opportunity for selfishness and maybe even evil. Do we spend the time and the effort and the money to do this, God, or not? And I've got to tell you, a couple of moments later, maybe 200 yards, 300 yards later, thoughts begin to fill my head. God, this had to be the dilemma that you faced as you designed, as you formed this incredible world of ours and decided to put humans in it with free will. Before you spoke your first words that formed these gorgeous mountains and pristine lakes and streams, before you made the very first man and woman, you knew we would tag your world and each other with absurd graffiti. You knew that we would trash these bodies with whiskey and with meth. You knew the abuse we would unleash on your planet, not caring about anybody else who would come after us with our oil spills and our nuclear waste dumps. You knew the carnage we would cause with our racism and our sexism. You knew how we would trash a human life with our fists and our guns and our drones and our own versions of religion. And you went ahead with the project anyway. Well, maybe we should too. God helped me to see that, yes, his forming us would mean experiencing the worst a human being is capable of. But he also got to experience the best that a human being is capable of as well. Yes, we would break his heart, but we would also fill his heart with music and loyalty and creativity and joy and sacrifice. And he couldn't miss that on that. And so he formed this incredible orb we call earth and formed you. All of that was running through my mind as we were preparing to work on this Alto project. And so we went after it. One of the best days of my life was that weekend. The first WhatsApp weekend. It was amazing. Not just to see a beautiful project come together, but to watch the beautiful body of Christ come together. And it was amazing how often serving communion in your church and what it means while you're doing communion never came up when we were hauling off tree limbs. It was amazing that what form of baptism you practiced or what you believe happens in the actual moment of baptism didn't matter while you were raking pea gravel. What you called your preacher at your church wasn't an issue when you were assembling picnic tables. None of our differences seemed to matter much while we were making a difference in the name of Christ together. Those differences seemed to fade. And then on Valentine's Day morning, some five months later, I was walking around the lake early and I came to one of those picnic tables that we had put in and I saw that somebody decided our picnic tables needed their name on them. And they wrote their names on them in black spray paint. I got to tell you, at first I was crushed. These were beautiful picnic tables. And I'd already seen the people that they were blessing, the folks that had come down just to read and enjoy the lake and those that had come down to bring their lunch at work time and just enjoy the walking track. I'd seen it happening already. And to see this 
it just broke my heart. And then it enraged my heart. I was furious. And I started quoting scripture, Psalm 69, 22. Let the tables of my enemies be a snare to them. Let their joyful feasts become a trap. Let their eyes become blind so they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually and punishment break out with no mercy. That's in the Bible, by the way. And quite handy when you're furious. So is Psalms 36, 12. Let them eat their own dung and drink their own... Well, I'm not going to go there. But you get the idea. And they're great verses when they're used properly. And I was furious. And I could barely breathe. Not because of the picnic tables. And what some Nimrod had done to them. But when I thought about us and what Nimrods we are. With this incredible world of God's. And with each other. With each other. I thought forget the tables. Forget the tables and how they've been abused. What about how we abuse each other? How does this compare when God sees a child abused? Or a woman raped? Or a body shot? Or antifreeze dumped in a sink because we're too lazy to take it to its appropriate place. How could you, God, do so much for us and put up with what we do to each other? How do you do that? If I feel anger over damaged picnic tables, how do you feel with what we do to your planet and to each other? I want to tell you this morning, church, what it does to God. It breaks His heart. Before we get to Genesis chapter 3, just three chapters deep in this incredible story of God, the first man and the first woman determined that they make better sovereigns than God. Some forbidden fruits eaten in chapter 3, and by the time we get to chapter 4, it's led to the taking of a life in the second generation rebels, Cain and Abel. Before two more chapters are gone, here's what God says about the world that he had created. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil. The Lord regretted, regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply broken. Marred tables? How about marked people? When God sees what we do to his planet and what we do to each other, you need to know, church, it kills him, but it also infuriates him. You need to know that. Because I would not be a faithful spokesman of his word if I didn't tell you the whole word. It infuriates him what we do to each other and to this planet of his. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure His wrath. Now I think for most people in this generation, that's a revelation. That's a revelation. Because they kind of see God as this harried tax accountant, especially during this time of the year. And he's a little busy keeping up with all the galaxies. Too busy to notice what we're doing to each other and to his world. Not. 
Others assume he's some doting parent, blind to the evil of his children. Wrong. Still others insist he loves us so much, he can't be angry over evil. And they don't understand. Love is always angry at evil. We don't understand God's anger because we confuse God's wrath with the wrath of man. And we've seen plenty of that. The two have little in common. Human anger is typically ego-driven and prone to explosions of temper and violent actions. We get ticked off because we have been overlooked and neglected and cheated. That is not the norm for God. Maybe the norm for man's anger, but it is not God's anger. God doesn't get upset because he doesn't get his way. He gets angry because disobedience is always a result or always does result in self-destruction. Brokenness on some level happens when we live outside the character of God, when we live outside the plans and the dreams that he has for human beings in this world. God doesn't get upset because he doesn't get his way. He gets upset because it breaks us. Sin breaks us. Disobedience breaks us. Rebellion breaks us. What kind of father would just sit by and watch his child destroy himself without intervention? What kind of God would do that? Do we think that he giggles at adultery or snickers at murder? Do we think that he looks the other way when TV producers pour out perversity like big gulps at a convenience store? Do you think he shakes his head saying, ah, those humans will just be humans? No. God's story reveals with very much clarity he hates sin. And he is angry when we take it lightly because he is holy, holy, holy. And Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13 says his eyes are too good to look at evil. He cannot stand to see those who do wrong. He is holy God. But he's also loving Father. So what are you going to do with all that? Those of you who have kids... Think about what a loving father does when children live outside of the principles that bring them life. When rebellion is just unabashed and unashamed. I saw that this week. Don't think it was any coincidence. A young man by the name of T.J. Lane. Some of you may have seen this in the news. Three life sentences because he walks into a cafeteria with an assault rifle and kills three people. He walks into the courtroom the day of his sentencing. He unbuttons his shirt and he reveals a white t-shirt underneath it and it just says in big bold letters, killer. And as his sentencing is read, he spews venomous obscenities at the parents of the children who've experienced the loss of a child. That breaks God's heart. And it infuriates him. Those are his kids that were mowed down. Those are his kids who are sitting over there having obscenity spewed at them because of evil in someone's heart. Multiply that by a billion, by a couple of billion. How does a father feel who is a heavenly father when all of this is going on? Furious 
Now, here's my question, church. Where in the world does justice make that right? How in the world? Literally, what part of the galaxy can God go and level the scales? Where, where, where can he, he make that right? Where can he vent that type of anger? And God's answer, listen to me clearly, is this. On himself. It is the only place in the world that the fury of God, multiplied by billions because of the sinfulness of every single one of us, can be poured out. The only place it could be poured out in this universe, and the universe not melt down, is on himself. Infinite, immeasurable wrath is poured out on an infinite, immeasurable God. That's what the story says. It was prophesied 600 years before it ever happened in Isaiah 53. Who would believe our message? Isaiah writes. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before us like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds are we healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is this him? You know the who. Jesus Christ, the willing sin substitute for you and my life. And the sin that racked them both. It was no more accidental that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus than it was an accident. This world was made through Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, listen to the word of God. You see, at just the right time. Do you hear an intentionality in that? Do you hear a purpose in that? At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anybody die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what did that look like? Let me tell you what it looked like. It began a few hours after sundown on Friday. Now remember, this is the Hebrew accounting of days, and so actually for us it would have felt like Thursday afternoon. But for a Hebrew, when the sun went down on Thursday afternoon, Friday began. And it started on Friday evening. Just after a short meal, Jesus and his disciples headed for a garden. But it wasn't long before there was an envoy of soldiers who came to take him away. And it wasn't before long that bold Peter and close friend John weren't anywhere to be seen. Those two tried to stay as close as they possibly could a little bit later. But they ran, just like Jesus promised they would. James, Matthew, they were nowhere to be seen. Gone. (coughs) 
Why betrayal? Why in the world would Jesus have to experience betrayal? Treason. The kiss of a friend who had turned him in. I'll tell you why. Because you betray. You break promises. You say you will and you don't. You say you'll stay and you flee. You run. When things get tough, you're out of there. You rebel. You know better, but you rebel. And you break your promises. And because Jesus is paying our sin debt at a place called Calvary, He has to experience betrayal. He's led up to a kangaroo court at the house of Caiaphas. Kangaroo because they're hopping around all over the place trying to come up with some reason why they can actually crucify this guy. False accusations are flying everywhere. Witnesses are brought in that can't even get the story straight. Why in the world would Jesus have to experience false accusations? Questionable motives. Because my friend, you are that kind of a rebel. You have your own kangaroo courts around McDonald tables and Starbucks tables and maybe your own dinner tables. Human beings that are precious to God are questioned. Their motives are impugned. No witnesses are called on their behalf, on their defense. And their reputations are shredded. You know better. You know better. And because of your rebellion, Jesus had to experience that. Because he's paying for your sin debt at Calvary. He's hauled before public officials. Herod, Pilate. Because you know what we'll do as human beings whenever we can't get our way? We will use any leverage possible, even if it's public. We'll go get us lawyers. We'll go get us law enforcement. We'll go get us anything that will enable us with peer pressure to get what we want. And because we have rebelled in that way, Jesus Christ had to experience that and was willing to take that upon himself. While it was in Herod's court, some soldiers decided to have a little fun with him. They call you the king of the Jews, right? Well, isn't that special? Well, let's just see how kingly you are. And the scripture says they take a royal garment, they take a crown of thorns, and they wrap him in it, and they slap him in it, and they mock him in it. They say, who, who just hit you, O prophet of God? Who in the world is king now? Why in the world would Jesus have to experience that spit in his face? Why in the world? Would Jesus have to experience people jeering at him and making fun of him? Because that's what we do to some of God's other creation. That's what we do to our own family members. We mock them. We make fun of the retarded, the mentally ill, the aged, the poor, anybody who can't defend themselves and mock back. What do we do? We choose sin. We choose it. In the very beginning of Adam and Eve, God invites those two people to um, eat of any tree in the garden. You're free to eat of anything here that you want. And they chose. 
the forbidden fruit, the one thing that they weren't allowed to eat. We choose to lie. And we choose to steal. And we choose to be greedy. And we choose to manipulate. And we choose to hurt physically and emotionally and relationally. We choose to belittle. We choose to steal. We choose prejudice over how much money people have, over what skin color they have. We choose self-righteousness because we believe that what we believe is better and more right than someone else's beliefs, even though we share the same Lord. We covet. We're not grateful. We're not thankful for what other people have. We covet what they have because we want it. And our jealousy hurts. And our jealousy kills. But nothing more than our broken promises. And the reason that Jesus Christ had to experience all of those things is because we're responsible for all of those things. All of them. It's led to a place called Golgotha. A place called Calvary. And the scripture says he was crucified. Publicly humiliated. Shamed like very few humans could be shamed in that day. And the scripture says that they put him on a cross and they killed him. They killed him. And his very last words before he left this world was this It is finished. Finished. Why? Why that? Because it's one more attempt by God to let His creation know you matter this much. You matter this much. And to help us see that true greatness in this world does not come in the absence of brokenness. It comes through brokenness. But what do you do with this? As we head into Holy Week this week, what do you do with this? Well, can I tell you what God hopes you do with this? In John chapter 3 and verse 16, God says, I so love the world that I gave my only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Would you believe He truly did pay your sin debt here? That all of the fury and the wrath you deserve was poured out upon Christ here. That I didn't have to make this up. 
2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that I might become the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. That's good news, church. And we've got to tell them the whole story. We've got to tell them the whole story. That He's the one who lovingly made this. It's no accident. And that we were lovingly formed right along with them. And yes, He fires us, but it's to grow us up and to strengthen us and to make us useful in His service. Brokenness, yes, we're going to experience brokenness because of our rebellion and because life gets on us. But He was broken for us. Broken. The key word there is for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for us. Galatians 1, 4, Jesus gave Himself up for us. Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. John 10 and verse 11, Jesus himself prophesied, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's us. In John 15 and verse 13, greater love has no man than that he lay down his life for his brethren, for his friends. He did that for you. He wanted you to know you mattered that much, friend. Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, a passage that we read at the meal that's often served on this table. This body he's given for you. This blood's been poured out for you. All of this, my friend, was done for you. So that you would know you matter. Because I know in this world, time and time again, we get the message over and over again. You don't matter for anything. Not so with God. Not so with God. At the end of most of our services, we have a time of invitation. Can I encourage you what I'd like to do today? The singing group is just going to be singing softly the first couple of verses on their own with you seated. They're going to sing the last one, and we're going to invite you to stand and sing with us together as a church. But here's what I'd like you to do. Take out that shard that I hope that you received when you walked in this morning. If you have never become a disciple of Christ, you're looking in a small way at the best deal in the world. Your sin for infinite righteousness. What a deal. And if you want to become a disciple today, come find me or one of our elders. You know what we want you to put on this? March 24th, 2013. The day that his brokenness became my brokenness. Come find me. And you know what we'll do? We'll hear you confess that there's no way in the world you could make this right. That you want His righteousness. We'll take you back here. We'll help you experience the only death that will have any meaning in your life ever. It's called the watery grave of baptism. We'll immerse you into water and raise you to walk into a brand new life. Amen. Leaving the deadness of your sins in the water. Some miraculous way that connects us with all of this. I don't understand the mystery. I just believe it. Amen. And as the group sings, if you've already claimed this brokenness for your brokenness, I want to invite you to do something. Number one, write on there with a pencil or a pen or something. One area he has freed you from. One area of addiction. One area of not telling the truth. One area of 
of being content with what you have, not greedy for more. One area in your life we want to celebrate, one area of brokenness that His brokenness has helped free us from. And then secondly, I'm going to ask you to write this down, one area of brokenness around you that you can see that He'd like for you to come get in. Knowing it will probably hurt, it will cost maybe everything for you to help heal the brokenness in a family member or someone who's next door to you or somebody you work with. But just one area of brokenness that this year, 2013, you will say like Jesus did, I do not count equality with God a thing to hang on to, the comfort zone of, of just being a Christian, but I will empty myself, taking the form of a servant. Being obedient, maybe even unto death, maybe even broken to the, to the highest level of brokenness. But like Christ, I know my Father will lift me up as well and hopefully lift up this person that I pour my life into. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to just think about those things. Would you all go ahead and start to sing? And I'm going to be praying over you. And then I'm going to invite you to stand on the last verse and let's sing together. This is your time of invitation. Please respond.